Dr. Amalia Ganyus Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Today, we're at the 10th Pan-African Parliament Annual Women's Conference, uh, celebrated in Midrand, Johannesburg, which is looking at the role of parliamentarians in promoting international and regional human rights instruments, especially those related to women and youth, peace and security, and female genital mutilation in order to achieve the demographic dividend. Joining us is Ms. Belek Mbeka, who is the Speaker of the National Assembly in South Africa. She was also Deputy President of the country from 2008 to 2009. She's the National Chairperson of the ANC, and she has served as Secretary General of the ANC Women's League. Welcome to Womanity. Thank you very much, and uh, I also welcome the opportunity to interact with the listeners you have been in the, the political space for many, many years. Can you share with us some of your career milestones, specifically in relation to women's development? Uh, let me, first of all, just mention that as a girl, a young girl growing up in the 50s, I had the fortune to be exposed to women's activities and campaigns of the time. Uh, when there were leaders like uh, Dorothy Nyembe uh, and I remember that in a local area in Deben where I was growing up as a child I observed women's meetings and passions and I could tell that my own mother was playing a role there she was uh, uh, taking notes so I think some of those small unimportant uh, uh, images remain in one's mind. But later on, as a young woman, I joined the ANC in my 20s, and uh, at that time I had left the country. And so uh, one of my first activities in the ANC was as the secretary of the women's section that was operational at the time, in exile, as we called it, you know, when we were not operating from South Africa, and I lived in Tanzania at that time. And, uh, and, and so even my own first lessons of leadership, of activism, were in relation to women, women's issues, the interests of the ANC in ensuring that some of us focused on issues that were of most importance to women. And so at the time there were many young ladies who had come out in the 1976 uprisings and therefore we as the leadership at the time of, women, of the women's section outside South Africa had to look at issues relating to that part of the communities of the ANC and therefore give guidance to the ANC in relation to women and positions that we proposed the ANC had to take that way about women, in particular young women. 
Earlier today, in your opening address, you mentioned the inauguration of Ellen Sirleaf Johnson of Liberia. Why is it that we don't have more women in positions of leadership? We've had Ellen Sirleaf Johnson from Liberia. We had Joyce Banda, Malawi. You yourself occupied position of, of deputy president. Don't you think it's time that we see more women coming to the forefront and striving for political leadership and leading countries? I definitely agree with you. I believe that uh, women have been very modest to start with. We ourselves tend to come across as though we believe only men are meant to lead, and that is not true. When I look at my own organization, the African National Congress, 105 years ago, when it was formed, there were such great women as Charlotte Matreke, whom when we read about her today, you really just say she should have been the president of the ANC. She could have been, but realistically, culturally, in terms of the development of society at the time, people were not ready for that, had not thought about it, had not thought it is feasible, but of course, so many years after, we have moved on, and in fact, there are many men who also encourage the development and the pushing of women into leadership positions. So I think things have changed, attitudes have changed, uh, I think people are more uh, ready, even men are saying so, and therefore I think we are now at a point where even young ladies looking at a, an Ellen, having been in power in a country that had been ravaged by war, such as Liberia had been, those young ladies now have an example, and hopefully many more of them will be ready to come forward and will feel confident in themselves that they can do it. And although I highlighted Africa for a moment, I think that from our perspective in general, that within the political space we have achieved far more than some of our, our Western counterparts. So if you look towards the USA, etc., and one of the things that I read from uh, the International Parliamentary Union in terms of women's representation, we have Rwanda leading the way with 64% representation in Parliament. We're not too far behind from a South African perspective at 41%. I think we're round about ranked sort of eighth, ninth, yes. depending on, on the levels. But the Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But yet when you start to look to countries like the USA, or the UK. The last time I looked, the USA was ranked something like 80th. How is it that so-called first world countries are almost so far behind in comparison to developing countries in Africa? Maybe uh, they should answer that question because indeed, I mean, when a country is so-called developed, you expect that one of the ways in which that development must be realized is by the level that the women in their society are able to actually occupy. Of course, uh, Hillary was ready, I must say, and I mean uh, to tell the truth what both Obama and Clinton, her husband, said about her, 
that nobody had been as ready as she had been. Because even they themselves, uh, when they came into office, had not been as exposed and as experienced in governance, in international relations, as she was. And therefore, the fact that, of course, in the world we live in, in reality, people will focus on what they believe are weaknesses, and therefore Hillary, unfortunately, didn't come in. So I think that society must talk to itself. They must ask themselves, what's wrong with them? Because really, uh, in, in as far as uh, other areas uh, in terms of the infrastructure in that place and therefore the freedom of women to be able to be involved in other areas of life than going to get water from the river and bringing water back and cooking and, and all of those things that women in our societies are still, the majority of women are still faced with. Because in South Africa, much as when you are in Johannesburg, you can be fooled, women out in the rural areas are still faced with a lot of difficulties of the everyday management of their family lives. And when we think about it, at least 50% from a South African point of view of women are based in rural communities. But moving a little ahead, and I know that in this session it's all about looking at economic empowerment of women, I was saddened to see that only 44% of our working age population of women in South Africa are employed. But the piece that perturbed me the most was the fact that 80% of them are in low-skilled positions, which means that they are more subject to poverty, earning a lower income, and positioned lower down on, on the ranking in terms of opportunities for achievement. What role do you think education plays, both from a point of view of understanding the workplace, but also developing intellect? I think you're spot on because uh, the reality of the history of our society is an issue that we must take into account as we uh, look at these issues. Uh, to start with, most of society that was never given opportunities were actually the female part of our society. Women were the ones in any family, if anyone is going to be prioritized to go to school, to go to train for involvement in various sectors in society or in the economy in general, those would be men. Those would be the boys in the families. The girls would be, oh, this one is going to be married to somebody one day and therefore we as a family cannot afford to train her or to spend this money in sending her to school and therefore the boy would be prioritized because the majority of our families simply really uh, were always struggling to survive and therefore in that struggle for survival women were the least of the priorities of any family especially predominantly in the black community so that's the reality of the past we are coming from in the past, uh, uh, in South Africa, in fact, in the black communities, if you were lucky as a, a, a girl, 
from a family that was able to send you to school. Uh, you would then have very few uh, opportunities or options. You were either able to go and become a teacher or become a nurse. Very few black communities were able to afford to send their girls to school and in particular to higher education. So that's the reality we are working with in terms of the society we are dealing with and from which we have to pull out and uplift and prepare future leaders to be involved in various uh, parts of the economy, uh, let alone in leadership broadly uh, in the society. So that's going to be something we have to improve on for some time. And, and hopefully in a couple of uh, decades we would be able to, to have uh, done with that. It plays back to almost the very first point that you were talking about, that we've got to change socialization. We've got to undo stereotypical views of what women are expected to do and what men are expected to do, and in a way, male privilege. One of the things which, again, I think the ANC is a perfect example, is quota systems. So in terms of having straight down the middle, 50-50. What's your view of quota systems in general, not necessarily within the political space, but also going into other sectors of society? I think, you know, sometimes we make believe we are able for things to be different. And, and almost like saying your ideal is something you must start to practice when in fact you have to do the best with what you have. So what I'm saying is that for me it has been shown in practice that quota systems are a useful way of changing the situation and making the point to society that women are actually as able as males are given a chance. And therefore, I commend quota systems because it also helps us to gauge the progress we have made or that we are making. And so quota systems have been useful, but you can't depend on quota systems forever. There must come a time when you have been able to prove the point and you have been able to bring up a lot of women so that, in fact, society can see that, wow, women can be even better leaders or better activists, better uh, practitioners of whatever area of life in which you, they've been given a chance to lead. And lastly, I know that you are busy and you're off for another appointment. If I can please ask you just to share a few words of inspiration to our young woman growing up on the continent. I want to say to young women growing up on the continent, the sky is the limit. Young women must go for it. Any and every gift that the Creator has given you, utilize it. We have fought the fight, we have fought the struggle, 
Women like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf have shown that it is possible. So young women of Africa, go for it. Thank you so much. That was Beleka Mbete, who is the Speaker of the National Assembly in South Africa. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today we're recording from the 10th Pan-African Parliament Annual Women's Conference, which looks at the role of parliamentarians in promoting international and regional human rights instruments, especially those relating to women and youth, peace and security, and female genital mutilation in order to achieve the demographic dividend. And joining us in this segment is Babira Veronica Kadaho, who is an MP from Uganda and also a member of parliament for the Pan-African Parliament. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm Veronica. In fact, I'm a member of Pan-African Parliament from Uganda. But in Uganda, I'm on affirmative action. I represent the women. And I'm so privileged to represent the least and the unprivileged group. Uh, my government has made sure that uh, the women have a big percentage in parliament, which is really a very big achievement because we have issues which we have to push for the women and we also have to push for the inequality, the injustices, and also to fight for, for the young generation as women. And you're right, we have got such a young population in the continent. We've got a good proportion, I think well over 60% are youth. And of that, at least 50% of them are women. So they're definitely a vulnerable group and a group which we need to promote and take care of. Can you tell us more about some of the initiatives that are underway in Uganda regarding women? Uh, the biggest initiative which are underway is educating all the women because before that the women were not privileged to go to school because of the poverty, so the parents were preferring to take only the girls, the boys, not the girls, but government came up with a program of educating and free education to all children. So this one has enabled both the girls and the boys to attend school. But uh, as a woman, we should keep advocating for this free education because when the education is not free to all children, the parents, they decide only to educate the boys and they leave out the girls. So governments need to give out free education to all children. Otherwise, if they don't do that, the parents will still discriminate over the children. You're totally right. And I recall from reading a UNESCO report where they estimated that for every additional year of schooling that a, a girl undergoes, she has an opportunity of an increase of 10% on her income. And the other components in that on educating women is obviously it's not only about educating herself, but it's about creating all of these benefits for her family, giving back to her children. What are your views? Uh, in fact, uh, the, the Ugandans or the Africans have realized that when you educate a girl, you have educated a whole village or you have educated a, a whole nation. So they are finding it very interesting in educating the girl. But the problem has been resources. 
So the resources the parents have been preferring only to educate the, the boys, but uh, with the initiative of the government of educate, with free education, now all children are having privileges. And when it comes to human rights, uh, the parents have been preferring the children to do the domestic work and even also to carry on other commercial work like uh, farming and so they would feel that the girl child should remain at home to contribute on the labor and leave the boy to grandfather his education but at least with the uh, advocacy of the children and also with the law we have the law uh, which protects children uh, below of years, and even we have the law of 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 uh, saying that all children should stay in school because there is no there is free education. There is no reason why a child below twelve years stays at home. So we try to legislate on it. So moving forwards now from the education aspect, one of the things which the, the conference has highlighted is about legislation. And I was quite keen to to hear about the dividend demographic almost as this divide that is happening where if we continue to have prejudices against women, they get further behind in pay, they get further behind in promotions of opportunities. Could you share some of your views on that? Um, There are certain professionals which... um have been having bias towards the women, especially the engineering profession and also the ICT profession. They have been preferring to employ the the men compared to the women, and this has really endangered the women professionalism because they they feel that women can't do better in engineering. They feel that the women don't have enough time to concentrate on ICT, which is really wrong and it really disadvantages our people. But uh, time has shown that, again, women are good performers once given those opportunities. So we need to get women in place, having that exposure and creating, in effect, a role modeling view and also demonstrating, I guess, to our men folk that women can achieve too. On that point of role modeling, you're a member of parliament, not just within the Uganda space, but also elected within the the Pan-African parliament. And as such, you're a role model to many women. So can you share with us a little bit more about those responsibilities? Uh, With Uganda, we have a lot to do with um, gender budgeting that whatever we do, uh, the gender issues must be there. Even in regard to employment, if they are employing like five people, the gender factor must appear there. That's why you see like us, the representative from Uganda, uh, Pan-Africa requires five people from, from each country, but at least here we are five women and there are two boys making sure that uh, the gender issue is there. So I would also appeal to other nations to copy a leaf from Uganda because the women, we must continuously to fight for them because they have come a long way and they have not reached where they are going. And talking about the long journey, I know that women have made tremendous achievements if we cast our mind back historically. Can you share with us some of the gender challenges that you encountered 
and how you overcame them, more from a point of view of, of giving people who are listening to us that mindset and opportunity of how to overcome challenges? Uh, I've really come a long way because, uh, first of all, I'm a politician, a politician who is educated at the level of master's and from the highest university in the country called Makerere University. Uh, in Uganda, one, to, to reach a university, and especially when you're a girl, it means that you've sacrificed so, so many things and uh, you've gone through a lot. And it means that you must have gone through good schools, which good schools you are in boarding, but uh, being in a day school, commuting long journeys, most girls drop out because you can't walk long distances. And in walking long distances, you have challenges, you have men, you have so many tormentors along your way. So you can only reach far when your parents can afford to pay for your school fees in a boarding. For me, I went through boarding schools, and at the university, university level, of course, the girls were few compared to the boys because of the dangers that the girls go through. And then after finishing university, I was retained by Makere University, and I worked there for five years before joining politics. But as a woman, I realized two things. For a woman, when you are very successful, Again, um, you have challenges. You have to do everyth everything in a, a rush. Uh, you have to get married in time. But a man can, get, can take his time, you know, to get married. Again, you have to look after the family as well you are looking after your job. So the responsibilities, you know, can affect your job if you are not very serious. Or your job can affect your family if you are not balancing the two issues. So uh, my success is about balancing, balancing work and balancing family life. But it's really hard to do two things at the same time wanting to please both sides. Yes, achieving balance is a real challenge, no doubt. And lastly, if I can ask you to please share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to young women and girls who are listening to us today. Uh, the, the young girls, you should always stand high and you should always be confident of yourself. Uh, because once you are confident about yourself, you go further and no one will stop you and nothing will stand your way. Thank you so much for joining us today and we wish you all the very best when you return back to Uganda in terms of implementing all of those gender-based activities and, and legislative components. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Babire Veronica Kadoho, who is a member of parliament in Uganda. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Joining us next is Haidira Achata Sise, who is the chairperson of the Pan-African Parliament's Women's Caucus. 
She is originally from Mali and ran in the country's presidential nominations in 2013. Welcome to the show. One of the questions that I'd like to ask you concerns the fact that tradition is not static because culture has been something that is highlighted where we are going through changes instead of people using culture as an excuse or religion as an excuse to perpetuate almost the subordination of women what are your views about culture and its changing thank you very much i think that one of the biggest problems we have today is the problem of culture people confuse female genital mutilation fgm with culture and religion and so as a parliamentarian my opinion is if we as parliamentarians with the assistance of civil society can raise a positive awareness we can reach our objectives against fgm Nowadays those from a cultural background who mutilate young women and little girls are now aware of the consequences of FGM because later on there are women who are pissing on the floor there are women who are unable to get married there are women who can't have children so we can explain it in an awareness that these are the consequences of FGM and some women also lose their husbands only because their husbands realize that they were mutilated and no longer want them So it is a serious problem. The problem of culture is serious, but at the same time it is a problem that can be solved. Why do I say that? In Mali 10 years ago you couldn't speak about FGM, but today we are talking about it freely in the media. We talk about it in the National Assembly. There's already a project of protection with the committee of the National Assembly for little girls against FGM. I think the problem lies more on awareness. There's a problem with projecting the laws, suggesting the laws and voting laws, but implementation of the law is more complicated. The law is difficult to monitor. It is easier to monitor what people are doing in the field if we go there, discuss with people and show them consequences. I think that is more important, not more important than the law. The law must be there, but laws must be accompanied by raising awareness because what we can have with awareness we don't necessarily have with the law for some people as soon as we talk about laws they are ready to respect them because they should not follow the laws it is like you are taking a stick to beat them there's an important phenomenon we address today one of the ladies spoke about it in her module she spoke about the behavior of parents midwives and nurses during birth and birth registration they know now that today there's an awareness campaign and mobilization of the world to stop this practice of female genital mutilation they no longer accept to leave their girls to reach the age of 5 6 or 7 years old because these girls can talk and report the girls are gathered for mutilation it is only behind closed doors when they hear that they will be mutilated generally in some villages and in some circles they prepare girls in groups to avoid being reported they mutilate them at birth when the child is still in maternity ward therefore it is a necessity to have complicity with midwives nurses from hospitals up to the house this is work a big job to do i think that today there's a small improvement concerning this cultural perception and my last question 
is you are very, very passionate about what you do, about making a difference, and about ensuring that there's implementation. We heard earlier today that there is a role by the state in terms of looking at respect, protection, and implementation to effectively inculcate women's rights. The message that we had is that Parliament must step up in their various countries to, make, to bring this change about. What would be one point or, or two points to drive implementation that you recommend? Yes, we talked about justice. We talked about respect and implementation. For me, I think it is three movements together. Respect is respect of commitment. When we take commitment, we have to respect them. What have we noticed? It is, for example, in the Maputo Protocol. The majority of the countries ratified it. Therefore, it is an application. But to apply it, there are some countries who always find excuses of a way to say, Oh no, not me, not my constitution. So we must first respect this commitment, and once we respect it, then we'll be able to do what we have to do. But also, if we don't do it, as a female parliamentarian, as a pan-African parliamentarian, as president of parliamentarian women, and at the same time, president of parliamentarian women of G5 Sahil, I think we have a role to play to call upon our governments with courage. I think that if we are not courageous, we cannot do anything. We must have political courage to work, because when we discuss the future of African people, when we discuss the future of little girls who have just been born, I think we shouldn't look back about what people might think, or whether I will get imprisoned, or if I will lose my position, that this is the rule of the game. Once you have decided to defend a cause, you do it without looking back. Whatever happens will happen. And when you do it with passion, and you have the support of passionate people, you can only succeed because they can't imprison everybody. They can't ban everybody. It is the rule of the game. This is not an easy action, but it's just the way it is. It is not easy. It is not pleasant. But if we fight, let me give you an example out of the subject. We were in Belgium previously. I proposed a problem to the Europeans that we didn't understand why they made a report on Kenya and now the Kenyan Electoral Commission says it isn't good and the Constitutional Court says it is not good. That means they made a mistake. So why are you always coming to our countries to make observations and why Africans can't, for instance, go to Germany to make these observations? They answered, it is not us, it is our head of state who asked us. I said, that is a mere excuse. We are for our people, not for our countries. So from the moment where you can come to us and we can't come to you, we will also do a resolution so that you no longer come to our countries. But the following day when we came back with a decision stating that from now on, when there are elections in the African, Caribbean and Pacific countries, that the European Commission should not observe, they immediately said that, African countries will also be able to go and observe elections in Europe. That is to say that we must just have the courage. There is a delegate whom I addressed this issue with before coming to the chamber, and he said to me that I talk about things that make people furious. Those things won't go anywhere. We have to have results. So I am determined, and I want determined people behind me to encourage me. I don't need to be pushed because I'm already forward. But who will follow me? I think if we do things with courage and determination, with this issue of female genital mutilation, if we say to ourselves, 
even though we belong to a different culture, a culture that is involved in mutilation, a culture that will never agree that we talk about FGM or stop it, that I also can't talk about it because if I talk about it, they won't vote for me next time, then we won't reach our goal. We must deal with the consequences and be aware of the consequences because sometimes there are things we are scared of. But when you dare to push further, you have good results in the end. It is the same thing with the intrusion of so-called superpowers with our personal issues. As long as we shift blame and say it is the grandfather, it is the elder brother, the father, nothing will move. Even your child, if you continue beating him up every day, one day they will rebel. So we must have political courage. Everything I've mentioned summarizes to having political courage. When we have that, it will open all doors. Merci beaucoup. Merci. That was Hadira Achata Sisse, who is the chairperson of the Pan-African Parliament's Women's Caucus.